Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello, I'm Steve Mould. I'm Matt Parker. I'm Helen Arnie, and this is a podcast of unnecessary detail. Yes, and we've got more detail than you can shake a stick at. And while we're shaking the stick, we'll also tell you all about the tree that that stick came from. <laughs> we've reached the episode known as To Infinity and Beyond. Which raises an issue right out of the gate, if I'm being honest. Okay, it's just a cute quote from Toy Story. We know it's not physically possible to go beyond infinity. It's just it, We just you. thought it was nice. Yeah, I know. But anyway, to, to avoid upsetting myself, the only quote I'm going to be using from this episode is an alternate Toy Story quote from the franchise. Because I'm talking about a race between space probes that was powered by a desktop calculator. So I'm going to go with, uh, you've got a friend in me. You know, reach, reach for the sky. I'm going for a reach for the sky. <laughs> okay, fine. Yes, very good. You can actually, that one's physically plausible. I'll be talking about how it's impossible to get stars in your eyes. Oh, okay. In that case, let's call it, uh, this isn't flying, this is falling with style. <laughs> okay. The podcast episode. Fine. What? Um, well, I'm singing about relativity and talking about the spinning orb that most of us spend our entire lives stuck to. Ah, in that case, we should name the episode, uh, There's a Snake in My Boot. <laughs> that doesn't... Well, it's very relative what kind of snake it is. And where it is in your boot. Oh, Matt, are you going to carry on with this throughout the entire episode? You're my favourite deputy. <laughs> <sighs> You're very welcome. Steve, what do you have for us today? I'm actually quite pleased with this, I'm not going to lie, because it fits very well with the theme, but also it's going to annoy Matt. I can just feel it. <laughs> what? I can just feel you, are, you are an expert in the field. <laughs> I'm talking about seeing stars. Here's the thing. When you look at stars, you're looking almost infinitely far away. Oh, what? Which is remarkable. <laughs> really, when you think about it. Oh, my. You're not looking infinitely far. Uh, carry on, carry on. No, no I'm, you're I... not, you're not, I'm not saying you're looking infinitely far away, Matt. I'm saying you're looking almost infinitely far away. That's not, doesn't make it better. <laughs> that makes it almost as bad. <laughs> It's, here's the thing. When you look at something, like imagine you put your finger right in front of your face and you look at your finger and think about where your eyes are pointing, right? right. Like imagine lines coming from your eyeballs that show the direction that your eyes are pointing. 
when you're looking at your finger, those lines coming out of your eyes are really crossed over, right? They're both pointing at your finger. So they're not parallel, they're facing inwards. They make right? a little triangle. Whereas if you are looking at something infinitely far away, those lines coming out of your eyes, they would be exactly parallel, right? I would accept <laughs> as you look at something and the distance approach infinitely far away, yeah. the, the direction of your eyeballs approaches parallel. Okay, great. Now, here's the thing. When you look at stars, your eyeballs are effectively parallel because the difference between the angle of your eyes when you're looking at stars versus the angle of your eyes if you were looking at something infinitely far away, it's indistinguishable. That difference in angle, you could never measure that. Like, and it falls well within like, the, just the error of you know, your eyeballs as a sort of a, a biological system. Steve, you're saying as a physicist, yeah. you could never measure them. And Matt's like, let me try. <laughs> I'm just saying. What I'm saying is it's incredibly close to infinity. <laughs> Compared to infinitely far away, the star is as close to your face as your finger. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but I, I'm totally on board with the angle argument. I'm, I'm with you okay. 90 degrees there. Uh, great. That's what I like to hear. The same thing happens with the lens in your eye, of course. Like you focus on a certain distance. So if you're looking at your finger, the, the shape of the lens in your eye changes so that it's in focus. If you're looking at a star, you're essentially focusing at infinity. And in fact, people who deal with optical equipment, they'll use that kind of language all the time. Like, I'll focus these binoculars at infinity. I'm going to focus this camera at infinity. What they're saying is focus infinitely far away. Like if you put a virtual headset on, the chances are that those lenses are focused at infinity, for example. Um, but actually, what I really want to talk about, besides annoying Matt, Tick. is the fact that when you look at stars, this really interesting thing happens. You might see a star in your peripheral vision and you'll think, oh, there's an interesting star. I'm going to look directly at that. But like you would move your eyes to look directly at the star. And when you do that, the star disappears. You think that's strange. So you look away again and the star reappears in your peripheral vision. And astronomers know about this. Sometimes if they want to observe a star, they look away from the star because when they look directly at it, it disappears. It's called averted vision. It's, it's a way of seeing uh, faint stars. It's because of the arrangement of cells on your retina. So in the center of your vision, it's mostly cone cells. But in your peripheral vision, it's mostly rod cells. Steve, before you get into the explanation there, like Matt has got a different type of annoyed on his face now, yeah. which is the annoyed of, you know, my wife's an astronomer. <laughs> <laughs> can't believe you're steve splaining averted vision to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah of course you know all about this don't you matt well here's actually here's a question this is for you steve Go on. from a biological point of view mm -hmm. are the cones good for focusing up close because cones are a focused in shape whereas a rod let's say a, a cylinder what is a cylinder if not a cone focused at infinity <laughs> it's a very good point <laughs> It's as solid an argument as I've heard so far. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> it's just... a truncated infinite cone. Exactly. <laughs> Can we just let Steve do the explanation that he is carefully prepared before yeah, you try and you. twist his logic? Oh, I, I'm just trying to embrace Steve's logic as we go along. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely not that. Oh. But thank you for uh, trying. 
cone cells are for color vision so they, they're good at sensing color and detecting fast changes in scenes that you're looking at whereas rod cells they're not color they just tell you the brightness and they're really good in low light situations they're not great at things that change quickly so if you're looking at a particular star and your eyes aren't moving your rod cells will tell you about a star in your peripheral vision but when you look over there your cone cells won't be able to detect it they're no good in low light situations what's really interesting though is the chemistry of it like literally sight is chemistry you don't think about it in that way the perception of the things around you it's actually all down to one molecule called retinol retinol is a handful of carbon atoms a few hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom and they're in this little chain and you know you've seen carbon chains before there might be a little kink in there because of a double bond and so on in other words the specific shape of the molecule can vary and in the case of retinol there are actually two different shapes it can have they're both stable so it's bistable it's like a, a switch it can be in one conformation or another conformation and you get from one to the other by twisting it but it takes energy to bounce between these two different stable shapes can i just clarify what it's called retinol and where's it found in the retina <laughs> <laughs> and i'm assuming the biologist named the retina first yeah and the chemists were like we found this substance in there what are we going to call it ah the person who does the naming is out today <laughs> retinol it is i mean they were so close to calling it eye juice that at least they went for something at least sciencey sounding <laughs> no i bet they'd already yeah. called a different fluid in the eye eye juice <laughs> so the way you can switch retinol from one shape to the other is with photons so a photon is just an oscillation in the electromagnetic field traveling through space and you might know that charged particles, when they're in an electromagnetic field, they feel a force. And so the charged particles in the molecule, the electrons and the protons, as a photon passes over, those charged particles will feel a force from that oscillating electromagnetic field. And if you get the energy right, and if you get the frequency of those oscillations right, in other words, if the wavelength of the light is just right, then you can switch the molecule from one shape to another in reality, it has what's called an absorption spectrum. So there'll be a peak. There'll be the perfect wavelength of light that it's good at absorbing. And it kind of drops off either side of that wavelength. So retinol has this inherent absorption spectrum, which peaks at a specific wavelength. Are you basically saying that the light that is entering your eyes, which is the information you're trying to process, is yeah. the same photons that provide the energy for this chemical switch to happen yes so the information right. that's coming into your eyes is what is powering the reaction that allows you to perceive that information yeah what? that's, cool, isn't it? that's great <laughs> that's my yeah. takeaway on it that's you, a good takeaway basically eyes are powering themselves it's like <laughs> iron man yeah. both of your eyes are iron man so to be clear though you retinol is the important molecule but it doesn't work on its own. It's found embedded within a larger protein called an opsin. And there's different opsins. So it's called opsin for the optical protein or whatever it is. Is this part of your argument that scientists are bad at naming molecules? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. 
I'm no, just saying they got lazy after a while. Well, this might surprise you, Matt. The opsin molecule found in rod cones is called rhodopsin. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and is it conopsin or is it just... It's actually photopsins. Oh. I don't know why. Oh. That's almost yeah, upsetting. That's the thing. That's the thing. Not only do they go for the simple naming convention, sometimes they just don't. Sometimes they'll just not follow the naming convention. So you've got these opsin proteins that sit on the cells in the back of your eyes. And the retinal is embedded within that opsin molecule. Rhodopsin in the case of the rods, three different photopsins in the case of the red, green and blue cone cells. And what happens is when the retinal is embedded within one of these proteins, the protein is obviously pulling on parts of it, twisting it a little bit, changing the shape of it, which changes the absorption spectrum, right? So you've got three different photopsins that change the shape of retinal in three different ways so that the retinal is now sensitive to short wavelengths, medium wavelengths, and long wavelengths in those three different photopsin molecules. So you can sense three different parts of the color spectrum, and that's how we see color. And so what happens is this opsin protein has been holding on to a little molecule on the inside of the cell because the opsin molecule straddles the cell wall, right? On the outside, it's accepting photons. On the inside, it's holding on to a molecule. And when the retinal changes shape, it causes the opsin protein to let go of that molecule. That molecule then reacts with another molecule, which reacts with another molecule. It's this whole chain reaction that ultimately leads to a signal being sent to your brain, and you perceive that as light. You perceive that as vision. What's really cool, and I think you'll appreciate this, Matt, (laughs) that for whatever evolutionary reason, those rod and cone cells are default in the on position, (laughs) From a neurological point of view. What? So, oh. <laughs> so they're all, the cells are always on. And then when they're stimulated by a photon, those cells turn off. And so the next cell in the sequence that goes to your brain is like a not gate. Okay, that is <laughs> it cool. It changes this on to an off and off to an on so that you can actually get the right information. Yeah. <laughs> you got me back on board. <laughs> so when you see a star, you're actually... You're no longer not seeing a star. Yeah. 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 <laughs> what? So seeing a star is actually letting your eye know that you're not not seeing anything anymore. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> what? And it's a chemical reaction powered by light that has travelled for potentially millions of years. That's actually blown my mind. <laughs> One final thing to say about retinal and rhodopsin and all that sort of stuff. There's another type of cell that isn't cone cells, isn't rod cells that you find in your eye. And again, it's a different kind of opsin. Sphere cells. That's sensitive to blue. Sphere cells. I'm just picking the other shapes it could be. <laughs> no, no, it's not sphere cells. Tetrahedron, tetrahedropsin. Yeah, prisms. <laughs> it's got a name. Maybe I should find it, but it, it's not important. <laughs> hey, I think we're pretty good at the naming thing now. I think you could leave it with us. Yeah. Tell, tell us what it does. I'll tell you what the name is. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what it does. It's sensitive to the blue end of the spectrum. And if you follow the neurons into the brain, it goes to a part of the brain that is colloquially known as the body clock. Oh. It mediates the production of melatonin. 
which right. is the sleep hormone. It's called awakenol. Awakenol, <laughs> thank you. Now, what's the opsin called? It needs to be wake opsin or something like that. Oh, blue blue opsin. That's the opsin. If it's got a knock gate in it, it's going to be sleep opsin. Sleep opsin. It needs to be sleep opsin. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah, because it's because it's reversed. So yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, that's why people turn down the blue on their devices before they go to bed oh. because it's the thing that helps people to wake up. What I love about this whole thing is that Matt has been wondering for a while why uh, astronomers never look directly at him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now I think we understand is that they were attempting to see your star-like qualities using their peripheral <laughs> rather than their <laughs> central vision. Are you saying my brilliance is so faint yeah. it can only yeah, yeah. be appreciated through averted vision? And now it explains why none of your wife's friends will look you in the face. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's so great because it's so weird. I was like, "Why is Helen complimenting Matt like that?" But of course, <laughs> oh, no, it turned it out clearly a setup. <laughs> <laughs> so, Helen, where are you taking us? I am taking us across the universe. Oh. Uh, this this is a song that I wrote for our domestic science series on Radio 4 that we then put into our "You Can't Polish a Nerd" show, available from all good digital download platforms as a comedy special or from our website you know where to find that blah blah blah. (laughs) so this is a song that i wrote because i wanted to write something that let you know simultaneously how insignificant we all are but also make you feel at one with the universe and i feel like after the couple of years that we've had i kind of think this song may provide some comfort and perspective uh, to our lives and let's play it in Snug and warm, tucked up in bed Dozing off your sleepy head Is still upon your Ikea flat-pack bower But as the earth rotates You're moving at 600 miles an hour That's if you're here, it's faster, closer to the equator and It's slower if you're near the North Pole Or to some lesser extent, Scotland <laughs> And as you lay down to sleep tonight, don't let those existential bed bugs bite. So while you sleep, I'll let you know that's not the only place you'll go. Cause the earth's revolving round and round the sun at 67 thousand miles an hour give or take a ton i find this helps me to know my place which is insignificant in the vastness of space because our galaxy is turning spiral arms all in a spin 515,000 miles an hour for the bit our solar systems in this crazy feeling may disappear in the coming weeks months or possibly years probably not though I wrote this song 18 months ago and I haven't slept since because our Milky Way is still moving from the moment of the Big Bang. We are currently cruising at 1.3 million miles an hour. You might be feeling still and tiny, 
But you're moving faster than lightning With relativity, you're a space traveler In your sleep I mean, that's okay, hon. I didn't want to sleep tonight, you know, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I. you know what? I'm not sleeping anyway, so I feel like everyone is now able to share where I am at this point in time. So the detail I want to talk about with that song comes from one single line that could have turned into a whole song of its own and may yet do, right? Which is, there's a single line that says, um, we're traveling at 600 miles an hour. That's that's how fast we're rotating around the earth. It's somewhere near the UK, which is where we are. Um, but as you travel towards the North Pole, that rotation gets slower and slower because you're closer and closer to the North Pole. I wanted to write that line to say, when you're at the North Pole, you're not moving at all. You're just spinning around on the spot. Yeah. You're going infinitely slow. Yeah, you (laughs) you don't have any movement left or right at the exact North Pole. You're just spinning round like you're on the top of a a spinning top or a spinning basketball or whatever. But that's not true. And as I was researching for this song, it turns out that almost everything I thought I knew about the North Pole is not true. And things that are not true don't make a very good song, but... Uh, <laughs> they one make day. a great clickbait yeah. title for a list. <laughs> they're a great listicle. They're not a yeah, good yeah. song. I'm, I'm still working on it. That's what I have to say. So I thought I'd share my North Pole facts and see if this conversation in, inspires anything. So number one, uh, the North Pole is actually the South Pole. What do you mean? Technically speaking, if you're talking about magnetism, right? Ah. Because the Earth is a giant magnet with a magnetic pole at one pole and the opposite magnetic pole at the other pole. And the the word pole has now lost all its meaning for me. It's very strange to hear it being said a thousand times. Pole, 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 pole. Uh, (laughs) So, but the thing is, you think that the north end of that magnet should be at the north pole and the south end of that magnet should be at the south pole. That is incorrect. It is the other way around, right? Because the original compasses were a little magnet or a little bit of magnetic material that um, the north end of that magnetic material pointed towards north. They were north pointing uh, or north seeking is the phrase, right? And named it because it pointed north. Yeah, not because it was pointing at the north magnetic pole. So the north seeking north bit of those compass magnets were pointing towards the south pole. So the magnetic south pole of the earth is next to the north pole and vice versa. <laughs> that is great. So if we all said north seeking and south seeking when we talked about magnets, it would be clearer, but we just shortened it. And I suppose that's where... The- it seems like it just fell off at one point and because yeah. the north pole had been named the north pole it, and it's using the same word as the magnetic north pole, it, it's just become one big blur. But yeah, the north pole <laughs> is basically the south pole. Because opposite attract, removing the word seeking flips the meaning of the name yeah Ugh, people <laughs> Ugh. people eh? Ugh. okay next uh, thing i found out was the north pole even if it was the north pole is not actually at the north pole right what do you mean there uh, <laughs> yeah. it gets worse <laughs> 
there's a difference between where the magnetic north pole is because that's dictated by the physics of earth and all the magnetic material inside it and on the crust and rolling around in the center right but the geographical north pole is dictated by the spin of the earth so there's two different north poles the magnetic pole and the geographical pole and they are in different places that might be something you learned at school like that's something i vaguely remembered vaguely yeah what you might not know is that that magnetic north pole just wanders around in various directions over periods of time and is never in the same place uh, where you last looked for it for a bit of background, uh, the Earth's magnetic field is generated by the iron in the core um, that is kind of s moving and sloshing around, but it's still a magnet, so it still has a North Pole and a South Pole. And the exact position of those poles depends on how the surface of the Earth kind of changes and bends that magnetic field that, that's coming from the center. And because the Earth is not like a still block of solid material, um, it's all swilling around in there. So the magnetic pole is defined as the place where the magnetic field is basically pointing downwards, right? If you had a compass with a completely free swinging needle and it, the only place where it points downwards, that is where you would call the North Pole. And yes. this North magnetic pole kind of wanders around it's somewhere between 400 and a thousand kilometers away from the geographical north pole so it's quite no. a significant way they used to update yeah. the position every five years but recently it's just gone completely rogue and it's moving at about 55 kilometers a year towards siberia away from canada i don't know if you knew that i knew the anti-fact of that because I went to Antarctica. Yes. And I thought it was hilarious to repeatedly say, the South Pole is just to the south of here. Yeah. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> um, yeah. In fact, the South Pole isn't even in the Antarctic Circle. Yeah. No. It's on the outside of the Antarctic Circle, moving away from it. It's ridiculous. So there's a whole half of Antarctica where if you stood there, you'd have the South Pole to the north of you. But the rotational South Pole, well, would be to the south of you, but your compass would say it's to the north of you because the South Pole <laughs> yeah. is to the north. It's super confusing if you're holding a magnet near either the North Pole or the South Pole. Either pole. Yeah. doesn't matter which pole you're talking about. That's why I've never done it. And the the reason these different continents are getting more and less magnetic is is because about 50 years ago, there was this big flow of molten lava, molten iron inside the Earth's core. And that all started moving around. And it's the after effects of that as it seeps into the Earth's crust and solidifies. Those 50 year old movements of the internal parts of the Earth are slowly changing the magnetic field of the rest of the Earth. Because if a bit of that molten iron kind of seeps into rock and then that molten rock solidifies, it keeps the magnetic field that it had when it was still liquid and kind of jiggling around. So this wild rogue magnetic north is speeding away from the North Pole itself towards the plains of Siberia, as far as anyone can tell. 
and at some point it might turn around and come back again but they they kind of don't really know they can kind of predict it for the next few years but after that they're just like well i don't know might fancy canada again maybe a bit of greenland i'm not sure (laughs) god it's weird might they be uh doing an exchange they're gonna flip (laughs) they're gonna that yeah. is a genuine possibility and one that I do not wish to think about. That came up and I <laughs> immediately stopped reading that That'll information be because it really scared yeah. me. <laughs> I mean, all the signs are there, Helen. You know, they're wandering around further and further. Surely that's mm-hmm. a sign that they're about to flip. You're going to have to take that with a meteorological unit who know, who know this one. Right. They're not making predictions. I'm definitely not making predictions. Can I give you a side <laughs> fact, right? The first pilot to fly over the geographical North Pole... His name was Richard E. Bird. Um, Although his claim to have flown over the geographical North Pole was later disputed and it was thought that he didn't actually manage to do it, his name is Dickie Bird. It's Richard E. Bird, and he's a pilot who flew over the North Pole. That is one of the most beautiful things I have heard recently, until I discovered that the first explorer to walk to the geographical North Pole on foot, uh, which is quite hard because it's not on a landmass, it's just on an ice sheet... This explorer had the most English name in the world, which is Wally Herbert. <laughs> and separately, both of those names mean so idiot. <laughs> so, <laughs> what a Wally. <laughs> there couldn't be a, a better like anti-nominative determinism about that. <laughs> I just like, is it a bird? Is it a plane? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. I've got another thing that um, I think you guys are probably pretty confident about knowing yeah. that you may wish to rethink after um, <laughs> after we've talked some more. I just want to go back to the idea that if the Earth is rotating and you're standing at any point on it, you are spinning at the same speed as that rotation, right? Which is about yes. 600 miles an hour here in yep. London and, and less towards the North Pole, more towards the equator. But as you go towards the North Pole, you expect it to go down to zero. Um It doesn't. There appears to be no place on Earth where you can stand and be just spinning in a circle relative to the space around you, right? Because the Earth doesn't spin like a perfect globe. You know, like you go in a classroom and there's a globe and it's there on an angle and it's got a stick running through it and you spin it and it's this perfect smooth spin. And someone's like, what are you doing in this school? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Once Once we've cleared that up. Uh, yeah. I go. I then break the globe, and it it kind of wobbles as it spins around. And then I go, fixed it for you, because the <laughs> Earth is not a perfect round sphere. It's more like a kind of squished ball. There's a word. But is it an oblate spheroid, Matt? I'm looking at you like it you is know, an oblate spheroid. An oblate spheroid, like you're sitting on a beach ball it's and a it's bit kind of squished. Fatter around the middle because yeah. of all this spinning. And yeah. it, worse than that, it's kind of lumpy, and it's got different. Oh, like, it's the worst. Densities. It's, the densities all over the shop. Ugh. What a mess. And that means that it can wobble or something then. So in addition to spinning around an axis, the axis itself moves or wobbles or something or processes. So the geographical North Pole and South Pole is where this like fictional center of the axis of spinning is, right? So if you were going to put a stick through the earth and spin it around like a toy globe or something, you also then have to wiggle the stick around in a circle so if you wiggle oh the gosh. stick that the globe is on, and the globe is also squished as well. So someone sat on the globe, they put a stick through it, they're wiggling the stick, and they're spinning the globe. That's more like what is actually happening. So there is no place on Earth that you can actually stand 
and be spinning in a direct okay. circle. Like if you went under the surface somewhere, if you were under the surface, then you would probably find the one of two points that were stable and not moving. But uh... In the center of the earth, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's an intermediate value theorem proof that there is at least one point such that... Are you, you sure about that? Space. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, on one side you go in one way, the other side you go in the other. It's going to uh, be a continuous transformation from one to the other. I'm hand-waving this. There'll be a point relative to the Earth as such that you're not moving. But it's going to be inside the Earth. It's not going to be mm. on the surface. Well, just to recap your terminology, just so we're all clear on this, magma jiggles, yeah. but axis of rotation wiggles. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Got it. Really important. Really Thank important. God we're using the proper scientific terms because yeah. you don't want to mess those up. <laughs> um, all right, there's something else about this wiggle, right? If you were there wiggling a globe on a stick in a little circle and you'd already squished the globe and done all of those things and made it lumpy and weirdly magnetic in a different way from your stick, um, you would also have to be wiggling more each year because the drift of the axis is getting greater as time goes on so the earth is wiggling more as it wiggles technical terms (laughs) and it's not very much it's only about 10 meters over the last century that axis has moved away from the central point even further and there's loads of reasons why it's like stuff going on inside the earth glaciers melting glaciers squishing bits of earth out of other parts of the globe stuff like that so there's loads of reasons why it's happening but it's yet another thing that is not stable that i thought was would you like a fun terrifying fact i'd love i mean i have only told you terrifying facts so far so one more is going to really help so humans have built dams big enough that the accumulation of water has changed the gravitational like distribution of the Earth sufficiently enough to alter the length of the day because it changes how fast the Earth rotates no. by redistributing the mass. As if anyone was going to sleep tonight, that's just <laughs> blown it for the last few holdouts. I think it slowed the day down because it's mo- I'm Now I'm just guessing because I think because you're moving mass further out from the center, you're probably reducing the length of the day, but that's... The Earth is definitely slowing down, which is a beautiful fact. It's the fact I did when um, I got invited onto the No Such Thing as a Fish podcast. Every day you live is your longest ever day because the days are getting slightly longer. Oh, isn't that a beautiful fact? See, maybe that's going to counteract everything else that I've said because every day that you live, you get to live that little bit longer every day. There is a little bit of hope in here. I've got one more fact for you. There is no time zone at the North Pole. So if you are at the geographic North Pole, you can just decide what time it is, whatever you like. Oh, that's nice. So in conclusion, if that song hasn't stopped you sleeping, then the fact that the North Pole is actually the South Pole, it's not even at the North Pole, uh, midday is midnight, at whatever North Pole you're at, and if you could stand on it, which by any reasonable means you can't, uh, you're still rotating in a big old circle. So black is white, up is down, night is day, and you are never, ever able to just stand still, which to me says, welcome to 2022. (laughs) Can I just say that your lullaby game has not improved at all? (laughs) (laughs) 
Is this why my son isn't sleeping? <laughs> Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, I thought we were two-thirds of the way through this episode, but it seems like we have an infinite amount left. Thanks, Steve. Now, <laughs> now I knew this was going to happen. I know you'd both do something spacey or, you know, fun <laughs> earth spinning. And everyone's like, oh, Matt's going to come and talk about different sized infinities or yeah. infinity paradoxes as infinite yeah. any of this. <sighs> Ex- exactly. Hotels. Yeah, that stuff. I'm not doing it. Oh. I want to be, you know, a popularist sellout as well. So I'm going to do, <laughs> I'm going to do space <laughs> that everyone loves. Okay. No dry, boring maths this time. It's all about space and it's all relatable. Oh. That's what I'm going for. I'd really love to thank you for that huge compliment of calling me a, a popular science sellout. I, I feel like that's truly elevated me in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> You've joined some of the best popular science sellouts, which is everyone apart from people who talk solely about abstract mathematics. <laughs> hey, you know that thing, everyone? where you're working on a spacecraft for over a decade, and then some other jerk spacecraft beats you to one of your significant milestones. That's the whole relatable setup. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what? That is relatable because we did do an episode in series one about the Philae Lander. Exactly. And how people spent 15 years working on that and sent 15-year-old technology into space, and it still did the job. It's like, it's it's a beautiful testament to how hard work can be totally duffed up at the last minute. Mm-hmm. So my wife, the, the smarter half of this relationship, Professor Lucy Green, spent 
15 years working on the Solar Orbiter project. And Solar Orbiter was a spacecraft that was launched in early 2020. We were able to get over there for the launch uh, in Florida. However, after ESA had announced this spacecraft, which was going to go closer to the sun than any other human-made object before it, NASA were like, guess what? We're doing a solar probe, the Parker Solar uh. Probe. It's going to go closer. And uh. so... <laughs> After all that And it's going to get there quicker. Gonna, and it, it got there first. Yeah, it did. <laughs> what? Yeah. How? What? It's such a jerk move. Um, <laughs> Lucy would like to point out, they didn't put any cameras on it. They've got some viewing, but no like images come back from it. It's like uh. sampling the wind and doing all these things. Whereas okay. Solar Orbiter, the ESA project, it's taking images of the sun. So she's still claiming that's vastly superior. But let's just say the NASA one is doing sun farts and the yep. ESA one is taking beautiful pictures of the sun. sun exactly. exactly, exactly. That's, <laughs> it, that's perfectly worded like a popular science sellout. <laughs> and you know what? If I was trying to um, capture sun farts, I would want to get in quicker and get out faster. Yeah. Right, yeah. I think NASA's got the right idea. It is. I think it's on a more elliptical orbit. So I think you've, you're onto something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so this happens, this happens. And it's been happening for a very long time. And in fact, specifically, I want to talk about uh, Voyager 1, which thought it was going to be the first spacecraft to get to Saturn. Mm-hmm. It looked like it was going to be very safe. Definitely the first. I mean, how is another spacecraft going to get there before it? Because Pioneer 11 has already launched and is not going to Saturn. It's going to Jupiter and then it's going out of the solar system. Confusingly, Voyager 2 launched before Voyager 1. But Voyager 1 moved faster. So, so Voyager 2 oh. launched <laughs> months before Voyager 1, but then Voyager 1 caught up and overtook it to become the true Voyager 1. So they had the foresight to name them the wrong way round so that they would end up being named the right way round. I don't know if that was their motivator, but I was like, <laughs> well, they launched them in the wrong order. They're going different speeds. Ah, Can I just yeah. check? Is what period of time are we talking about? Is this like the seventies? Yeah, seventies. So Voyager two launched in August nineteen seventy seven, and sixteen days after that, Voyager one was launched in September nineteen seventy seven. Can I just cross reference when were the Star Wars films made? Because I feel like the numbering system has a lot of parallels. Oh my goodness! With seventy <laughs> seven was Star Wars, wasn't it? Wow. Mm. Yeah, hang on a minute. This is no coincidence. People were numbering stuff in the wrong order. This is the time. That's amazing. They launched Voyager 2. Everyone's like, why is it number two? And NASA's like, prequel potential. (laughs) (laughs) Once the technology's better, we'll do it again. The world is not ready for this story with this low level of graphics. (laughs) Yeah. Achingly true. So, So you're on the Voyager 1 team, right? And you're thinking, okay, obviously there's Voyager 2. But we're faster. We're still going to get there first. We're going to beat Voyager 2 there. And uh, Pioneer, which launched back in 1973, isn't going to go there. But then some jerk with a desktop calculator works out that you could change the trajectory of Pioneer 11, which is already launched. You could change (laughs) it en route to get to Saturn before either of the Voyager missions. What? And so because of the invention of the world's first desktop scientific calculator, a different spacecraft got to Saturn first. And what a calculator it was. We're talking about the (laughs) HP 
9100A. Oh, what a classic. I have no idea what you're talking about. Hey, <laughs> what I love is how you're reading out the name of the calculator with, with genuine reverence, but it's also the genuine reverence of the jerk who had that calculator. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're just a man born after your time. Like, you know, if you'd been alive then, that would have been you. Imagine that calculator. Now, the calculator, it was a massive breakthrough at the time, as in it wasn't massive, and you can put it on a desk without it breaking through. It was the first... <laughs> It was the first ever computer that could do scientific functions that wasn't like a massive, like mainframey, you know, big chunk of metal somewhere. Yeah. And in fact, it was the first device ever described as a personal computer. Wow. But I'm guessing it was still pretty chunky, right? You, you could put it on a desk, but you couldn't put it in your pocket. It was designed to fit in the slot that was previously used by typewriters. So on these executive desks, you'd have like a little drawer or a thing that pops out and then that's where your typewriter would live. And it was designed to fit into one of those. That is a beautiful way of increasing your adoption rates of this new technology is make it fit exactly. It was literally, it'll slot into the old spot. Uh, The the very early prototype didn't quite fit. (laughs) And while the HP executive was away, they got a carpenter in to make their desk slightly bigger. (laughs) So that they yes. could fit the prototype into the slightly enlarged typewriter spot. And they got away with it. It's incredible. And the production one was the right size. They just didn't want to have to explain why the prototype was slightly bigger than it should be. And when this thing launched, oh my goodness, it made waves. It officially, according to Steve Jobs, inspired them to get into personal computers when they first wow. saw an HP 9100A calculator. And Arthur C. Clarke wrote HAL in A Space Odyssey based on this calculator. In fact, HAL is HAL 9000, named after the HP 9100 desktop calculator. Wow. Wow. It it was such an influential calculator. They took an early prototype of it to NASA. They demonstrated it to some of the NASA engineers, and they literally gave it a standing round of applause. (laughs) Yeah. No, it takes a lot to get engineers out of their seats. And they actually, they all stood up and they just, when they saw it, it was able to calculate all these trigonomic functions and, and then plot them. They, they just lost their minds. They jumped out of their seats, burst into applause. Wow. And it was Dr. James Van Allen of the Van Allen Belt oh. fame oh. who realized with his HP 9100A with optional plotter attachment could calculate the new trajectory for Pioneer 11 to send it to a slightly different part of Jupiter. So then the gravitational slingshot would zip it over and whip it towards Saturn. And it was able to get there slightly before Voyager 2 got there. So Pioneer 11 got there in August 1979. And Voyager 1 arrived a year later in August 1980. Wow. A clear year. A I mean, that year. is some sneaky, sneaky slingshot action there. I'm really surprised. Like, my assumption was once you set these things off, you know, there's an initial burn and then you've got a little bit of fuel for, like, you know, changing direction a little bit, whatever. But not enough to just completely... No, you'd be amazed how much they fix on the fly. When, when, right. when you think... 
you've got to build this thing and launch it and then you can never touch it again. Yeah. They're still constantly updating. Like, and think about how rudimentary the circuitry and, and computing power yeah. of these things was. Although Voyager, so Voyager 2, which got to Saturn 3rd now, barely counts. <laughs> they still meddled, I suppose. They still meddled. <laughs> it's, on, it's on the podium. Yeah, yeah. It's got some metal. Yeah. Yeah, it, it got it's made of metal. It was the first <laughs> spacecraft to then get to Uranus and Neptune. Right, but by the time it got there, the photographs it was taking, the exposure time was getting so long that they had to update how it compensated for roll because when they turned on the magnetic tape drives that was used for its memory. <laughs> The spinning of the magnetic tape drives changed the angular momentum of the spacecraft and caused it to slightly roll. And oh, the exposures were so long. It was fine for Jupiter and Saturn, but it was getting so dark at Uranus and Neptune, they had to update the software to compensate from the roll induced by the magnetic tape drives on the spacecraft. Oh. And that was done after launch. The inverse square is one hell of a rule, isn't it? <laughs> It's, oh, the, the inverse square <laughs> might get you every time. Gets you every time. The only um, slight bit of revenge that the Voyager folks got was, well, what the Pioneer 11 people wanted to do was to go to a scientifically interesting part of Saturn. Probably like over the pole so you can see more of it, you can see the rings, you can do more science from the pole. The Voyager folks were like, fine, if you're going to get there first... You're going to be the test. And, and we want you to just to slam straight into the rings to make sure it's safe for when we get there. <laughs> and that one. So Pioneer 11 didn't get to do the interesting science trajectory when it got there. They're like, fine, you can get there first. But NASA said, you're going to be the cannon fodder to check it's safe when we bring the expensive ones through. And so they wow. sent Pioneer 11 through the rings to double check that would be safe when Voyager 1 eventually showed up. I mean, it stops you ever wanting to be first for anything yeah. now. Because, like, yeah. why, why would you? Because your, your boss is like, hey, you're going to get there first. Cool, can you just, like, check it, you're not going to die, and then we can send other people? Yeah, it was very early startup. It's like, you know, yeah. move fast and break rings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> why does this satellite look like a canary? Do-do-do. <laughs> <laughs> There you are. The history of space exploration was changed because some very clever people at HP managed to work out how to do scientific proper trig and hyperbolic calculations in something the size of a typewriter. It was actually a guy called Tom Osborne who first designed what became the HP 9100A. He tried pitching it to places where he was working at the time and no one else thought it was possible or thought it was feasible. So he actually he quit his job and his wife kept working, and him and his wife worked on this thing at home wow. to build wow. the very first prototype of what became the first scientific calculator ever. And there was a moment when he first got it working, and he sat there looking at it, and he, he wrote some years afterwards that he felt more like the discoverer of an object than its creator. I thought of things to come, he said. If I could do this alone in my tiny apartment, then there were some big changes in store for the world. And he realized he was looking at more computing power per unit volume than had ever existed on the planet. And he realized that was going to change the course of the future. Didn't realize 
also going to change the course of a spacecraft or two. <laughs> anyway, that's <laughs> that's my crowd-pleasing story about the HP 9100A, Ugh. the first ever scientific calculator. Welcome to the popularization of science, Matt. You did well. Oh, it feels good. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> I feel really good selling out. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's the end of this episode. And it's the end of the entire second series. So the only thing left to say is, you uncultured swine, what are you looking at? Your hockey puck. That's <laughs> 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 to quote Mr. Potato Head from Toy Story. Okay, snap out of it, Buzz. Thank you so much for listening. We've loved making this podcast and we really hope we can come back at some point with a third series. If we do, we'll be back as part of the Acash Creator Network. Yes, we will. And if you still need more detail in your life, our show notes have loads of links to other related things from this episode, not just calculator recommendations, astronomy tips and songs to help you not sleep at night. Now, we are done for this season. So we should say, first of all, hello to everyone listening in reverse order. I like your style. <laughs> but if you've just reached the end, you can still help out by spreading the nerd because the more people who do listen to this podcast, the greater the chance we'll get to make season three. And don't forget that we also make a ton of other stuff as Festival of the Spoken Nerd and as individuals. Uh, you can find our live science comedy specials, books, audiobooks, radio series, T-shirts, YouTube channel all online. You can get links to all that stuff at festivalofthespokennerd.com and if you want to get in touch, we're on all the social medias and on podcast at festivalofthespokennerd.com. Don't be a stranger. It has been a pleasure to have you along for this series and we hope we will be back soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 A podcast of unnecessary detail is made by Festival of the Spoken Nerd. That's Helen Arney, Steve Mould and Matt Parker. Our series producer is Lindsay Fenner. This episode was produced by John Harvey and edited by Clarissa Maycock. Our theme music is by Howard Carter and we're proud to be part of the ACAST Creator Network. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.